Second Samuel. Second Samuel. I'm going to begin with the last few verses of chapter 13, beginning at 37, and reading through 14:7. And I'd like to ask Ariel to pray God's blessing upon his own truth. Second Samuel 13:37. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Omiher, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of David, King David, longed to go forth unto Absalom. For he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman, and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner, and put on mourning apparel, I pray thee, and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that hath a long time mourned for the dead. And go in to the king, and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spake to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obeisance and said, Help, O king. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, Of a truth, I am a widow, and my husband is dead. And thy handmaid had two sons, and they two strove together in the field. And there was none to part them, but the one smote the other and killed him. And behold, the whole family is risen against thy handmaid. And they say, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew. And so destroy the heir also. Thus will they quench my coal which is left, and will leave to my husband neither name nor remainder upon the face of the earth. Let us pray. <clears throat> Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as my brother prayed earlier this morning, we come before your throne and ask that you would touch the lips of your servant who brings forth your word today. Also, ask along with that that you would touch our hearts that they would be open. <clears throat> we see in this passage. And yet it is written for our edification, as we are told. And therefore, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, your spirit would be active, working through your servant to show us what your body can learn, how we can be sanctified and grow from this passage. We thank you, Lord, that we can come before your throne and be the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Following up with the course of this chastisement, the chastening hand of God upon 
David, the man after God's own heart. I'm saying that somewhat facetiously, I fear, because of what we have been exposed to, what David has exposed others to, what he has exposed his people to, obviously to himself, that which he has exposed himself to. He has truly opened a can of worms. Sin is like that. It's hard to stop the course of sin as we read from James. And as we heard Thursday night, it's hard to stop the course of sin once it's begun. And it seems like that, sadly, David's not even putting up his hand of authority to stop it. After all, he is king. And it's interesting that God did not take the crown away from him. He did not take the throne away from him. He did not take the sword away from him. He left him in that place of authority with crown, throne, and sword. And yet David continues to behave as a weakling. And I believe that it's fair to say somewhat anachronistically because we haven't gotten through this book yet, but I'm sure that many of us or most of us are familiar at least somewhat with the events that follow. And I think it's fair to say that while David was forgiven this terrible sin, this awful wickedness with Bathsheba and with Uriah, killing her, having him slain, that David never again, never again wielded the sword as he once had. And I think there's a a fearful lesson there for us. We can be forgiven We can continue in our place by God's grace. But it may be that we never wield the sword again as we once did. And we have to consider that. This portion that we've just read in our hearing, picking up in the situation again with Absalom after he had slain his brother Amnon, And like his father, having Uriah slain with others, the swords of others, so Absalom had his brother Amnon slain with the swords of others. And then he fled. He fled to Grandpa, you remember. He fled to Geshur. His mother, Maaka, was from there. And and the king of Geshur was his grandfather, her father. So he fled to his kinsmen according to the flesh. What a terrible indication that is. Running to the world, leaving the community of God's people. Whatever you may think of Israel, they were the community of God's people. They were the apple of God's eye. They were his covenant people. Whether there were few saved or whatever, they were God's covenant community in this 
son of David, after this fall deed, left that community, much like Cain fled, much like Jonah fled, he fled to Geshur. But perhaps the really sad part of this is when we read, and the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom. It doesn't say anything about David praying that Absalom would be given a new heart, that Absalom would be given a new heart to enable him to repent of his wickedness as he himself had repented. It only says that he longed to go forth unto Absalom. David is caught upon the horns of a dilemma. He was caught between conflicting demands. Surely we all know something about that. Being between, as they say down here, between a rock and a hard place. Caught between conflicting demands. Justice demanded the death sentence for Absalom. David's love for his son Desired, or we could say demanded, as far as he was concerned, restoration. He longed to go forth unto Absalom. Can we relate to that temptation in our lives? Can we relate to that temptation in our Christian lives? In our spiritual walk, being between a rock and a hard place? being caught in those currents between the Scylla and the Charybdis, as they call those items in the Mediterranean, not wanting to go too far and be swept under by that whirlpool, not wanting to defend ourselves so far from the whirlpool that we crash and are destroyed on the rocks between a rock and a hard place. Have you ever been between a rock and a hard place? In the sense that David is here on the horns of this dilemma. Being a man after God's own heart, I think he truly desired to do God's will. And yet he desired at the same time to do David's will. Which will is going to win? is the question related to this horns of a dilemma, this rock in a hard place. But Joab recognized, we've read, that the king's heart was toward Absalom. Joab had enough contact with David, and perhaps he was even influenced by the reality that David knew that Joab knew because Joab was complicit in the murder of Uriah. Joab knew that David knew that he knew. You've heard that. And he saw this Achilles heel, this weakness in David due to the fact that David 
was guilty of that, even though God had forgiven him. Joab knew all about it. He was the one that received the letter to put Uriah up to the front and then back off and allow him to be slain by the Ammonites. So perhaps Joab was using this. Joab was quite a politician. Yes, he was David's general, but he was quite a politician. Of course, we've never seen military and politics mixed in this country, fortunately. But this is what Joab was. Was a very astute politician. And as most politicians do, he knew how to play both sides against the middle. Joab recognized that the king's heart was toward Absalom. He recognized what we just read, that David longed to go forth unto Absalom. David longed to have Absalom restored, returned to him. He had this immense love for whatever reason, for Absalom. Maybe Absalom reminded him of himself. We read of Absalom's beauty and so on. Maybe David was a very fine looking man. Maybe Absalom reminded David of himself. But whatever it was, David had an incredible love for Absalom above his other sons. I was struck when I read this again and again, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. Oh well, move on. <laughs> what a conflict. This man after God's own heart has a heart that is twisted in favor of his son. Do you know anything about this? <laughs> Have you ever had such a conflict? Well, many, many would say hey, blood's thicker than water, and they would lean to support David in this. But we say, yes, blood's thicker than water, but we're thinking of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's so popular even among professing Christians to think that God loves you is the gospel. God is love, they say, usually to the exclusion of all of God's other magnificent attributes. But brothers and sisters, God is love. The scriptures declare that God is love, but it's only one of the outskirts or the fringes of God's ways, to use Job's language. There is infinitely more, as one prayed just several minutes ago. We don't comprehend all that there is in the infinitude of God, and we never will. It's beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. But perhaps we can understand David here. David was a man after our own hearts as well as a man after God's own heart. So I would submit that we probably can relate 
to this temptation that David's come to here. How he dealt with this horn, horns of a dilemma. Love he placed over justice. Not love for God, sadly, but love for Absalom he placed over justice. Has anyone ever challenged you in your Christian experience? Has anyone ever challenged you? Say, why is there estrangement between you and your family? How come? Why is it that you can't even get along with your kinsmen according to the flesh? Have you ever been asked that or something similar or related to that? Why is it? You're a Christian. You're supposed to love everyone. Why is it that you can't even get along with your own siblings? Why is it that you can't even get along with your own children? Why is it that you can't get along with your parents? What are these obstacles here? What's the problem? Must be with you. We know that. Why can't you get along? Why is there estrangement between you and those that you're supposed to love? The only answer I suppose that we can give that it's better to be estranged from family than it is to be estranged from God. Better to be estranged from my family than to be estranged from God. Jesus himself declared, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. How many aspirations for children are crushed by those words? How many respond as David responded and put love for his son over justice and frankly over his love for God? Former friends Peter says, think it strange that you run not with them into the same excess of riot. They think that you're kind of odd. You don't actually live what you preach. You don't actually live what you believe, what you say you believe. You're supposed to be all about love. And yet you don't even have communication with your children or with some of them or with some of your siblings, or with perhaps your parents. See what Job had to say. Listen to this, what one of Job's complaints, sanctified complaint perhaps we could call it. Listen to what he said. He hath put my brethren far from me. And mine acquaintance are wholly estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed. And my familiar friends have forgotten me. My breath is strange to my wife. And my supplications to the children of mine own mother. My siblings. 
think I'm really weird. They don't want to listen to anything I have to say. Even my own children, my old acquaintances, my kinsfolk have failed in the sense that they don't want anything to do with me. Oh, how easy would it be? How easy would it be to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'll change. Wait a minute, I'll figure out a way to get over this. I'll figure out a way to bring this rock and this hard place together gently. David was unwilling to part with his son. He was unwilling to part with his son. How are we doing? How are we doing? Nobody ever said it was going to be easy. But the inference, conspicuously in Christ's words that we just read and heard, is that you may be called upon to part with a son. You may be called upon to part with a daughter. You may be called upon to part with a sibling. On and on. With former friends and so on. Are you willing? Am I willing? Are we willing? To be estranged from kinsmen rather than to be estranged from God. David was unwilling. Are we tempted, like David, to forsake truth for mercy? To forsake righteousness for the sake of peace? Can't we all just get along? Hey, it's Thanksgiving. Let's all get together, brother, sister, talking about according to the flesh. It's Thanksgiving. Come on, kids. Come on to grandma and grandpa's house. We're not even thankful for the same things that they're thankful for. Two different worlds. One man's book, one theologian's book about the gospel is two worlds. Two worlds. Well, Joab designs a subterfuge. He's going to help David out of this dilemma. He, he devises a substitute, subterfuge, kind of a Nathan-like. Maybe he got the idea from Nathan's parable to David. Only he put words in this woman's mouth. God put words in Nathan's mouth. But maybe he was kind of copying that Nathan-like parable anyway. This woman of Tekoa sets this case before David for the king's judgment. Very similar to Nathan setting forth a parable and getting the king to make judgment against himself. That's not what Joab wants to be the outcome, however. He wants David to make judgment for himself when she sets this excellent case for mercy before him. Let mercy rejoice against judgment is basically what she's saying. And this appeals, does it not, to the natural man? Let us all just get along. Let us just be merciful and loving and kind. Never mind truth. Never mind righteousness. 
This appeals to the natural man. Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience against his sin, and it did. Thou art the man. This woman's parable was designed to rouse his feelings against his conscience. Give him a loophole. Give him a escape mechanism. Show him a way out of this dilemma. Get him off those horns. But what becomes of truth? What happens to truth when, when that's done? It's thrown to the ground. David, the man after God's own heart. And I remind you that that's God that referred to him in those terms. David, the man after God's own heart, is here seen satisfying his own heart at the expense of God's justice. He has placed his interests above God's. He has inverted mercy and truth. He has inverted righteousness and peace. That's not God's heart. In this woman, Joab put these words in her mouth, we're told. This woman comes forth with these arguments in order to appeal to David and to show him these ways that he can get out of this dilemma. And brother and sister, young people, old people, these are the world's arguments. These are arguments that you will hear when you try to live as salt and light. These are the arguments that you will hear when your family is estranged, when it's broken up, when it's dissolved. The world will come upon you with these arguments that she came upon David with. And she basically even speaks a little further on about the avenger of blood. Well, the avenger of blood, you remember the avenger of blood in the, in the cities of refuge that were for the, the manslayer? This manslayer, however, was one who had accidentally slain another. The axe head came off his instrument and hit and struck another in the head and he died. And the next of kin was going to come after him to kill him and he was appointed city of refuge to flee to. And if he got there before the avenger of blood took his life, then he was protected in there. But he was also judged and if he was actually guilty of intentional premeditated murder, he was set outside the city walls, outside the gate where the avenger of blood could have his way with him. And this avenger of blood, this city of refuge aspect applies to the story that this woman made up that Joab put in her mouth about her own sons. It applies there because they were not, we don't have any witnesses. They got in a fight and one of them smote the other and he died. It may have been premeditated, we're not told, but anyway, the avenger of blood and the city of refuge applies probably to that parable that she set forth, but it does not apply to Amnon and Absalom. Absalom was guilty of premeditated murder. The punishment should have been death. And therefore, the city of refuge does not apply to Absalom. It was no accidental death, but premeditated murder. 
You remember how long he waited, two years, fostering this hatred. In her argument about quenching her coal, in other words, an expression speaking about bringing an end to her husband's lineage. That applied to her parable, yes. Because it was her only son that was left. But it doesn't apply to Absalom because there were others. There were 30 at the party, at the feast besides Amnon. There were 30 that, that jumped up on their mules and ran off and fled back to the city to their father. It wasn't bringing an end to the lineage of David. So it doesn't apply. It's ill-placed, this application she's trying to make. We know, of course, that Adonijah was the next in line after Absalom. It simply didn't apply. And brother and sister, the world's arguments will be found to be full of holes like this. They may sound good. They may even sound good to you and to me, but they're full of holes because they're riddled with untruths. And then she pleads man's mortality. She basically says, well, and sadly, this is what we already referenced that sounds like what David's saying. She says, Amnon had to die sometime. If, if Absalom hadn't killed him, he might be dead anyway. What's the big deal? Besides that, it's already done now. Don't cry over spilt milk. All these sorts of arguments that the world will bring forth. You can't change it. Why worry about it? Why sweat it? What are you, a precisionist or something? What are you, a Puritan or something? That won't bring Amnon back to life if you put Absalom to death. Hey, everybody dies. What's the big deal? And it does appear that Amnon was held by David in much, and even by the other people. Amnon was held in much less regard by the people than Absalom was. We read about the beauty and, and how Absalom, in his long hair and everything, attracted the people, just really looked to him and so on. Amnon was something of a reject by comparison. And again, it's surprising to read that David was comforted about Amnon seeing he was dead. That's hard to swallow. What happened? What happened to the man after God's own heart? He fell into sin, and sin is taking its course. Even though forgiven, it's taking its course. He's being chastised. He's not being punished. It may be hard. It may be almost impossible for the child of God to recognize, wait a minute, am I being punished? Or am I being chastened? It feels kind of the same. And it's faith that tells the child of God that it's Christ that was punished for his sin. David probably remembered those words that he had spoken to the messenger that Joab sent to tell him that what he had, done, what he had asked him to do with Uriah was done. You remember what David said to that servant that told him, and Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also, the servant of Joab said. You remember what David said in 2 Samuel 11? 
Say this to Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Oh, well. He's a soldier, wasn't he? Perhaps that haunted him a little bit when those words were spoken by this woman about Amnon. And then the woman, and this is the world's big argument, isn't it? The woman pleads God's mercy and his clemency towards poor, guilty sinners. She says, God deviseth means that he that is banished be not an outcast from him. God is love. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you and it doesn't include banishment. Just come on. Just come on back. There's nothing said about repentance. Nowhere do we read a thing about Absalom repenting, not one jot or tittle. But she says God devises means. He can, he can come up with a plan to make everything right. Well, he has, hasn't he? But it includes not only faith, but repentance. It includes what we find in David's 51st Psalm. But the world wants to tell you, God loves you. God, God doesn't want you to stay away. God wants you. And she might even be saying, in effect, implying God's vengeance has suffered Absalom to live. Why then should not David's justice suffer him to return and be restored? God hasn't taken him out. Why should you? Imitate God. It's against the mind of God that sinners should be forever banished from him, isn't it? God doesn't hate anyone, does he? He's not willing that any should perish. And like Satan, he, they even use scripture to try to defend their case. He's not willing that any should perish. And she's telling him this instance of God's goodwill should incline us to be merciful and compassionate toward another. Go on, send for him to come back. It's been three years. That's long enough. Come on. And then, of course, she says, as we've already alluded to, she says that the, that the heir should be destroyed out of the inheritance of God. The woman suggests that, that Absalom being shut out of the inheritance of God, that that, that, that he's, he's over in Geshur. He's without the laws and the ordinances which might help to bring him to repentance. This pragmatism. Oh, bring him back. Bring him into the church. Bring him into the church. Bring him into the Christian school. They might get saved. But they're unbelievers. Yeah, but they hate God. They don't even want to come. Bring them in. Use whatever means you can to bring them in so we can get them saved. One bad apple don't spoil the whole bunch. Do it. Of 
That's their specious argument. And they argue that a few good apples are able to resuscitate the rotten ones. Did you ever see a rotten apple coming back to life? Scripture contends, and that's more important, that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. You don't bring Absalom in back in thinking he's going to repent and that he's going to be salt and light and that he's going to be, be used of God to bring the whole nation of Israel back around. You, you know what happened when Absalom went back, right? Did one bad apple spoil the whole bunch? Pretty near. Pretty near. The idea that an unrepentant Absalom is going to be a good thing for the community is foolishness. Absolute foolishness. How did God solve this dilemma? Wasn't God in the spot? I say that reverently. He loves his people. He loves his people. They're sinners, wicked sinners. How can he save them? Oh, that's all right. Come on in. God can't do that like David. God can't do that. And he didn't do that. But rather for the showing of his righteousness at this present season, that he might himself be just and the justifier of him that hath faith in Jesus. He found an answer to the dilemma. Of course, he knew it all along. He had the answer. That he could remain just because he punished sin in his own son. That he could be the justifier of those that believed on his son. That flew to his son as their city of refuge. So that now justice rejoices because sin has been punished. And grace rejoices that the believing sinner has been freed from condemnation. God's not left his people because he loves them. But he didn't tell them to forget about repentance, forget about your sin, just come on back. We just want you back. John Newton put this glorious thing in in one of our hymns. Let us wonder, let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. But God didn't forget about his righteousness. He didn't forget about being just. David sullied justice for the sake of love. He sullied justice for the sake of love. He cast it down to the dirt. So unlike God. So unlike God. Consider Golgotha. Consider Gethsemane. What the son went through to salvage, if I can put it that way, God's justice, to preserve would be better. To preserve God's justice, 
that he might be just and the justifier. And no wonder that we read, that we believe we're reading of the pre-incarnate Christ in Psalm 85.10, mercy and truth, righteousness and peace. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 85.10. David would have peace apart from righteousness. He would sacrifice the truth for the sake of ill-placed mercy. That's the world's behavior. That's the world's arguments. That's their doing. Compare the manner in which David treated his son with the manner in which God treated his son. He became sin for us. God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's how God treated his son. Not like David treated his The man after God's own heart was willing to sacrifice justice in order to spare his son. Not so God. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's how we have to Strive to live and behave. Not like David here. Jesus Christ is indeed mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace having kissed in him. I know it's not easy. And as I said earlier, nobody said it was easy. And I know it's not easy. It's not easy to be separated. Not easy to be estranged. By your own blood. But the blood of Jesus Christ satisfies all that. It satisfies. He has become, we read in Hebrews, Christ has become our merciful high priest. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mercy and truth come together in our great high priest. And Peter said in Acts 3, you have denied the righteous one. You chose that, much like David. You chose Barabbas. You've denied the righteous one. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And he, of course, according to Isaiah, is that wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Righteousness and peace have kissed in him. Mercy and truth have met together in him. What an awful example David has given us here. I wouldn't be able to believe it if it wasn't in this book. Awful, sad, heartrending. But there it is for our instruction, for our understanding, 
for our understanding what is in us. That we might be tempted in this way. And God help us to respond differently than David. God help us to choose Jesus Christ rather than anyone of our family. It is only God who can give us that will. Ask for it every day. O Lord our God, the high and the lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, we thank thee and praise thee for thy word. We thank thee and praise thee for him who is the eternal word, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the incarnate word. O Lord our God, keep us, we pray, in thy hand, through Jesus Christ, by his spirit. Amen. Just stand, please, for the benediction. From Mark chapter 10. Verse 29 through 31. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, And he's saying this to all of us. There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or mother, father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but he shall receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last in the last first. Amen. Oh, uh, thank you for reminding me. Fellas in particular, ladies and gentlemen, uh, help is needed downstairs to set up the tables for our Thanksgiving meal this evening. Please volunteer so old men don't have to do it.
sense to me that way. The, def but, the definition of a prophet in, in, yeah. given, you know, the thing that I mean, he says comes to pass and so on. Right. It, it, you could almost just transliterate that to if they're speaking the truth. She wasn't speaking the truth. Her arguments that Joy had put in her mouth were fallacious arguments. Yeah. I, well, they simply didn't hold any water. Yeah. And if he hadn't been so set on bringing Absalom back, he wouldn't have seen that. Okay, well, I, I guess, again, how can she even mention the Avenger of Blood, for example, when it didn't even apply? Uh, just for example. I, I guess it's just like any other argument we have when we have arguments with people we throw things out that don't totally make sense, and uh, whether we are thinking about it ourselves or The key is to enjoy understood what he wanted to do. Okay. He understood how badly he wanted somebody Give him an excuse, an excuse to okay. trample on justice without looking at the So we sent this case to I just totally was looking at it. I'm not. I need to be wiser, I guess. Well, we all need that, really. Uh, anyway, I just. Uh, I went to years and years and years ago, and I don't remember totally. You know, the best my memory is the pastor basically came out one Sunday morning and said, "There must be I think you ought to be using wine with me," and that was it. <laughs> and it was nothing was ever said afterwards. <laughs> you know, so like if you came six months down the road, you probably didn't know it was grape juice or not if you had never experienced any difference. Well, I think there are a lot of and good I, arguments. I've got mixed feelings because I'm, I don't drink wine. I don't drink beer. I, do, I, you know, um, I had two drinks in my life and they kind of led to a time of depression. And so I sort of I was thinking uh, while I was up there listening to others, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, overturn that Christian liberty conscience argument of Romans 14. But there's, like I admitted, it's problematic. It's hard. My, my problem with Romans 14 is Romans 14 is talking more about food than wine. Well, it's not talking about communion. And the people who are arguing Romans 14, generally speaking, they aren't the ones that are giving up the hamburgers or their steaks, you know, for the vegetarians. You know? It was good that Chuck brought up the possibility, anyway, that somebody might be offended by grape juice. Well, I can't say that I'm offended, but I... And I, I was thinking about that 
and I was thinking, you know, <laughs> I think I'll look at it this way. I don't like the NIV translation. Mm -hmm. But if there was some kind of catastrophe, I was on an island or whatever, and someone said, hey, I can get you a Bible, but if the NIV, I'd say, thank you, bring it on. <laughs> really? In other yeah. words, I'd rather have that than nothing. Right. Uh, and I'll just say the same thing in a sense with regard to grape juice. I'd rather have communion than not have it. And so. Well, I've actually sat under the teaching that would be used coke. He didn't mention pizza. That's kind of awful. Pretty good to meet you. Gotta take this Okay, you take care. Have a good day. Thank you.